You're listening to WNHH Radio 103.5 FM in New Haven. This is The Table Underground. I'm your host, Tegan Engel. We're digging deep into stories of food, race, radical love, and creative social justice. Our guest today is Rachel Sayet. She is a Mohegan tribal member. Rachel, welcome. Thank you. Tabatni again. Rachel is joining me to talk about native foods and traditions and an upcoming workshop she has on maple syrup. Her Mohegan name is Akirusu, which means she who reads. And it's pretty fitting because you work in a library. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how did you get that name, Akirusu? I was given that name by my great aunt, uh, the former medicine one, Gladys Tantaquijan, when I was about six years old because I read 500 books in the first grade. Wow. The women in your family are, are leaders in the Mohegan tribe. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, I can. So Gladys was the person who founded our tribal museum, and she also wrote a book about herbs and medicinal traditions about the Mohegan and Delaware tribes. She traveled all around the country. There's a lot to know about her. And today, anthropologists are finally starting to kind of, you know, look at her work um, from a modern day perspective and realize how, how valuable it is. Mm. My grandmother um, was the vice chairwoman for a lot of years of the tribal council, the Mohican tribe, traveled all around, you know, the world, meeting with different representatives, getting the casino going, things like that. Um, also had some published articles about the culture and the history. And she was also a teacher um, before she was on tribal council. So she's an educator as well. And my mother is the tribal historian and the current day Mohegan medicine woman. And she has written numerous novels um, about Native American culture and history in New England, but also she writes fiction. So she does some Native sci-fi. Her most recent book that came out was Wabanaki Blues, uh, about a Mohegan and Abenaki girl who sings the blues. And it's a young adult book. So I have kind of a long history of, you know, different educators, speakers, um, and things like that. The women in my tribe um, have always been the culture bearers. That's how Mohegans kind of pass down their traditions is usually through the women. Um, the women are the culture bearers and the knowledge keepers generally, um, as opposed to some, some tribes out west where it may be more um, more the males. The men who do. Yes. Yeah. 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 So it's a, it's a matriarchal tribe, um, the way it's set up. And so when, you're, when your mom and your aunt were growing up, who were they learning from and where were they, what was the community they were growing up in? Yeah, I mean, especially I would say, you know, in my grandmother's time and my great aunts, like, you know, they would, you know, be walking just to visit their relatives on Mohegan Hill. And, you know, they, they mainly did interact with Mohegans, although there were other people. So, you know, Mohegan kind of is a section of Uncasville, Connecticut. It's kind of the, you know, the section of the town that a tribe lives in and has always lived in, um, although the reservation at one point was much bigger. My mother, you know, she grew up in a little bit of a different time. But she, she went to... um high school in New London, actually, as did my grandmother. It's kind of a family tradition to go to the Williams School, and I went there as well. Um, so they were obviously exposed to other people and other cultures, too, mm-hmm. but I would say, like, growing up, like, as, especially in elementary age, they were all kind of around Mohegan Hill. Mm-hmm. And Mohegan Hill um, is where Tantaquidgen Museum is on Route 32 at Uncasville, and that street has always been um, Mohegan land or, you know, um, Mohegan mm-hmm. homes on that street, and that's also where our church is. It's one of the oldest um, Native American churches in the country. And basically, we were being threatened as Eastern tribes with removal um, in the early 1800s when other tribes were being removed and moved west and, you know, mm-hmm. Trail of Tears, all those things were happening. And 
because we were Christianized and civilized, um, we were able to remain in our homeland. Mm. Wow. And so they were learning medicine and kind of the traditional culture from elders, from elders in that community. Right. Exactly. I mean, you know, like I said, things changed, of course, from generation to generation. Um, you know, everyone kind of picks and chooses though, you know, what parts of the culture they're most interested in. My great aunts were much more, um, especially Gladys was much more involved in the medicines than for instance, my great grandmother was. And it seems that you've really gravitated towards the food and, Mm -hmm. and really learning about and teaching about native and traditional foods. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of been something that I have started learning about, um, more as an adult. Um, I did grow up eating a few different traditional recipes, but it wasn't something that we would eat day to day at my, at my home. Um, my mentor actually has been, um, Dale Carson, who is an Abenaki woman who lives in Madison, Connecticut, who has written numerous cookbooks. And also she writes a food column for Indian country today. She's an elder now. Um, and she's passed on a lot of this knowledge to me mm. and also to her children, but they've never made it into like, you know, something that they were doing as programming as much as she was. So she's been passing it on to me kind That's of as, as a mentor and, um, just an amazing woman. Um, just tons and tons of recipes, some of them, her own recipe, mm. um, you know, and some of them are, you know, she gathered from different tribes. So kind of like, you know, my family with the museum, she kind of did that kind of same thing with, yeah. with recipes. How long have you been, been working with her? Um, probably about four years now you know at one point I think my mother put us in touch because I was thinking of it as a possible thesis topic or something when I was in grad school and um I wound up focusing on traditional stories at that time but then when I moved back to Connecticut I was living in Boston at the time when I moved back here I was asked to be part of a conference um a food panel on Native American foods so I wrote up a paper worked with Dale on it um Dale also gave me a lot of contacts for different chefs in the area um, people that she'd worked with and she knew would be valuable resources. So that connected me with, um, the Tomaquag Museum that had a Native American restaurant called the Dovecrest for, I think about 50 years. And they were world famous, Mm. um, for some of their recipes and, um, Native American recipes like Johnny Cakes and things like that. And, um, so she connected me with her. She connected me with Sherry Pocknett. Um, Sherry Pocknett is, um, definitely getting very well known in this area. She's now the food and beverage director for Mashantucket Pequot Museum. Mm. And prior to that, she was just doing catering um, with her catering business, Sly Fox Den. She's Mashpee Wampanoag. And her family, similar to the um, the family at Tomaquag Museum, the Dove family, the Pocknett family has always been doing Native American foods. So her uncle, Earl Mills, wrote um, a great cookbook called, uh, I believe it's Cape Cod Wampanoag Cooking. Um, and he had a restaurant out on the Cape that was mm. a Native American restaurant called The Flume again, I think for, you know, maybe 30, 40 years. Um, and so she's kind of followed in his legacy. So all of these, you know, connections between the cookbooks and the actual people were what made up that first paper that I wrote. It was a lot of interviewing, a lot of meeting with people and it just taught me so much. And now I've realized there's just so much more to learn and so much more to teach on Native American foods. What did you, what were the things that like opened your eyes that you didn't know before that you learned through that process? There are so many different things. Um, I mean, I've always been open to trying different foods my whole life. So I know that, for instance, Sherry, one of her, you know, she makes like fried frogs legs with three sisters rice, which is one of her, you know, we did have, you know, the bullfrogs in this area and, you know, it would have been something we would have been eating. Um, 
I, I enjoy those, but I know when I bring it up for a lot of people, it's a little bit too foreign. <laughs> because the frog legs. <laughs> because the frog yeah. legs. But the three sisters rice is like corned beans and squash just mixed in with a wild rice. Which right, is... so for people who don't know, tell us what is the three sisters So the three, garden, sisters, three sisters food. Three sisters is um, corned beans and squash, and um, when you grow them... Um, the traditional way is in mounds, and you grow them so that each each plant helps the other. Right. Um, and, you know, there's some Iroquois stories around that as well. Um, right. So the beans usually vine up the corn stalks, and the squash shades the ground so that the weeds don't grow. And then also, like, chemically, they one of them fixes nitrogen in the soil, one takes nitrogen, so they kind of grow in this very totally sustainable way where right. they they're not depleting the earth right yeah it's a completely so. symbiotic relationship and we use it down here but it's also an iroquois tradition ever since corn came up from mesoamerica you know mexico area it was a vital food source for the people um of north america of native america um, mm -hmm. of this you know this part of the united as we call it the united states as well um even though it's not something that was always here um it became a vital food source and um you know we also would cook the corn traditionally with ash in the ground, right. so that would help to um, bring out more of the nutrients in the corn. Um, and like doesn't that also allow us to digest it better? Right, yeah. yeah. So it just helped, you know, some of the people who were eating the corn, you know, in those colonial days without the ash were getting these illnesses like pellagra, and the Native mm. Americans weren't getting those because they were using that ash. And some, some Native American chefs still do use the ash today mm. um, for some of their recipes. So right now is the end of winter. And a lot of people think that there's not really any crops growing in New England, but it is the harvest time for maple syrup. So is this, is maple syrup yes. a traditional food in, in native cuisine? Yeah. So prior to colonialism, we didn't have the sugar that we would have today um, in this area. You know, we didn't have sugar cane, but we had the maple syrup and we had that from the maple trees. Um, I believe there's over 150 different varieties of maple mm. um, out there, but there were, you know, they were plentiful in this area um, and all, all through the Northeast. And, you know, for every season, um, for Native Americans, we usually celebrate the seasons, we celebrate the harvest. So, you know, and those are based on also the moons of the year. They're all interconnected. Everything's right. connected. So right now we're in the maple moon mm. and um, it's kind of That's the time. That's beautiful. I love that. Maple <laughs> moon is a great great name. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, Tobutney. Um, yeah, I, li I like the maple moon too. And so we're in this this time, um, you know, where it's still getting a little bit warmer during the day, the nights are cold, um, and that's the time that the, the sap is running really well. And um, so traditionally, we would be using the maple syrup for baked beans. Like, that's an indigenous recipe that a lot of people don't know. Um, is people from think of, England. like, Boston baked beans, but that was actually a native recipe. Exactly. Mm. So I, I try to talk about those things at my, you know, discussions. I'll talk about baked beans, lobster, clam, fritters, things like that, that people might never associate with Native Americans, clam chowder, even though that seems like a very simple one. But the baked beans, we would use maple syrup. So they use syrup or the sap? We could have used, you know, we, we would boil it down and get the syrup mm. traditionally. So probably could have used both yeah. in ancient times, but um, today people use, you know, syrup, yeah. Or sometimes they'll use molasses, you know, the more modern day approach. Right. And so do you know anything about how it was discovered? I always wonder that because when you boil maple sap down, it's like 40 gallons of sap becomes one mm. gallon of syrup. And whenever I've tasted sap, it's such a subtle sweetness, right? It's like barely sweet water. Mm -hmm. And I always wonder like, how did people figure this out? Because that is a long, that's like a lot of wood <laughs> to burn a fire for that long to reduce it. Do you know anything about how... 
how it was discovered? I do not know. And I'm not sure if anyone knows that story specifically, but I do know that there is a traditional story um, that I read. I, I do a little story time where I work in the library, um, mm. and I believe it was an Ojibwe story where, you know, it was a story about a little boy that actually went out and he he cut into a tree with his knife and he discovered this stuff he was calling sweet water and no mm. one believed him. And, you know, he went home, he brought it home and his family thought it was just regular water. They threw it in their meat and it was this delicious. And <laughs> delicious then it like meat. reduced down. Yeah. yeah. So, Ooh. I mean, that could be one, you know, one version of the story. You know, a lot of times with oral tradition, we've got, you know, some multiple right. versions of how things originated. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that there are a lot of different ones, but I do know that it has been an integral component of our food, you know, source for hundreds and hundreds of years, yeah. all, all throughout, you know, not only the Northeast, but the Midwest as well. Yeah. So aside from the black beans, are there other recipes that you use in your workshop? The workshop I'm doing upcoming this coming week, we'll be doing a cornbread recipe that instead of using regular sugar, we're using maple sugar mm-hmm. and it's a strawberry cornbread. So it's, it's celebrating the maple. It's also celebrating strawberries. A lot of times we'll do it like more in the strawberry season, but I like that re- that particular recipe because it's an interesting take on cornbread. Yeah. Um, and then I'm going to be doing a maple drink. So it's just like water and boiled with either maple sugar or maple syrup. It's just mm-hmm. a nice little... You know, natural and, soda. Right. And I mean, you know, maple syrup and maple sugar just have so many more health benefits. Um, right. Than eating refined sugar. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, yeah. it's just a lot better for you overall, but it is the price is what kind of these days unfortunately sets people off right for you how has learning about native food changed your relationship to how you think about your heritage hmm so I find that you know I've done a lot of work in general about decolonization trying to you know work with whether it be traditional language or traditional um history oral traditions on stories bringing things back to the traditional way. Um, a lot of, you know, tribes throughout the country, you know, they call it decolonization. It's kind of just, you know, revitalizing these things, ceremony, dance, language. Um, and so food, foods have become a huge part of that. A lot of different tribes have these food sovereignty programs now um, where they're trying to sustain themselves, not only politically sovereign. Some tribes are not politically sovereign. It's a whole separate conversation, but <laughs> but we're all, we're all historically sovereign. We were all... Um, even before there was this process of federal recognition for tribes, we were all historically sovereign nations that Mm -hmm. had our own governments. Um, and so we all had these different things, you know, whether it be different foods, different dances, different types of stories. Um, yes, there are, you know, some similarities, but, um, the food is a huge part of this because, you know, we do live in a modern world, um, where industrialized agriculture is the norm. Um, although there are many small farms as well and, it becomes, you know, just another part of bringing those traditions back and also making our, our own tribes, you know, sustainable, mm-hmm. um, bringing us back to being able to sustain ourselves rather than relying on, you know, um, a supermarket or something like that. So that that's really where the importance lies. Um, you know, it's kind of baby steps, you know, learning about, you know, which which were our most important crops. Right now, um, my tribe does a, um, a small garden for kids. Um, where they do have some of the traditional crops planted and, um, they have Jerusalem artichokes, they have some strawberries, um, some tobacco and, um, different types of squash and things like that Mm -hmm. to teach the kids, you know, these were our traditional foods, Yeah. but we're working on expanding the programming and, you know, eventually would like to be more self-sustainable. And that's what, that's what my goal is to, to know, not only help my own people become more self-sustainable, but also to you know, kind of work on that decolonizing mentality for myself. 
in terms yeah. of my foods, you know, and look at like, yes, exactly. Like, you know, looking at all these processed things that we eat in our modern day diet and kind of going back to the traditional, the whole foods approach, which, um, it's kind of funny cause a lot of people have looked at it and said, you know, that's basically like the paleo diet. It's very similar to these modern diets is right. really the native American diet. Yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes starting with food, like there's so much comfort and there's so many other things with food, right? Like you connect to the eating and the sharing and the cooking together. And so sometimes that's such a great starting point for using food to bring people back to those traditions and heritage because it, it's a connector. Exactly. Yeah. And I agree with that. It's definitely, you know, a good way to kind of, you know, give people a little bit of education about Native American culture who aren't too familiar about it. Um, they can always connect with some type of food. You know, maybe not everyone wants to eat frog's legs, but cornbread and things like that are definitely a good start. Yeah. I'm really excited about the work that you're doing, and I think that you bring such an excitement to to teaching people about Native food ways, and also you're able to integrate it into what people eat in a modern diet, and um, and you do it in a really thoughtful way. So I'm, I'm really excited to see more of your work and, and learn more in the future. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Tegan Tabotney. If you're interested in attending Rachel's upcoming workshop on maple syrup and native foodways, it's Saturday, March 11th from 1 to 3 p.m. at St. James Episcopal Church in New London, Connecticut. You can RSVP to Amelia at area code 860-235-9123, or you can reach her at foodandcanning at hotmail.com. If you want to learn more, check out our website, thetableunderground.com. You can find podcast recipes and a lot more there. Welcome back to the Table Underground. I'm Tegan Engel, and we are outside in New Haven in March. It's a little chilly out here, and I am with one of my neighbors, Sam, who is eight years old, and we are about to gather some maple sap. Sam, how you doing? I'm good. So what's going on back here with this tree? Well, this is a maple tree. It's old and how I know they're ready and my grandpa taught me this trick is if you can hug them and your hands can reach all the way around, it's probably not ready. If you can't reach your hands, it's ready. If you can reach your hands around it, then it's too skinny, and it's not old enough to tap it? Yeah. All right, cool. Well, this was for my age. For your age, <laughs> okay. So, you have three buckets over here. What's, what's, yeah. They're, they're hanging off the tree, and do they have sap in them? Yeah. What's Usually, I find this one the most successful with sap. How much sap do you think is in there? Um, let's... Maybe about... A it's cup, two cups. A couple cups, yeah. It looks like maybe even, yeah, two cups, maybe three. And there's a big ice cube in it. Yeah. Just when you pull out the ice, you want to make sure you don't get any sap. You throw the ice away? Well, it's just ice. It's just ice? Water it's not frozen it. sap? Mm-mm. Most of the sugar, the right. more concentrated sap does not freeze. So mm-hmm. if we take off the ice, we can shorten the boiling process a little bit. Okay, so they're hanging on a little hook up there on... You have a little tap hammered into the tree, and then the mm-hmm. the bucket is hanging on it. 
All right, so now we're taking so, down another bucket. You can hear this one sounds different because it's a metal bucket. This is the kind, the old timer. What we use now, we use either plastic buckets or some people even use plastic bags to collect. All right, Sam, you have one more bucket to go. This one looks dry today. It's still pretty chilly. So, Sam, what makes what makes it have more sap or less sap? Um, usually where it's tapped in the tree might matter. And and does it matter about the weather? Yeah, a little bit. Because you want it below freezing at night and above freezing when it's day. So when it gets warm in the day, then that makes the sap mm -hmm. flow out and it's cold at night. And you don't want to do it too close to where you did it last year. This one has a couple taps right over there. And over here, there's not as many taps from previous years. So you look where you can see the like a scar from where you tapped it before and you yeah. try not to tap mm -hmm. too close to it, like at least yeah. at least like three, couple three inches. inches, couple inches over. Yep. Cool. All right, so what do we do with the sap now that you collected it? Well... We need an evaporator in our backyard. Sometimes we boil it on our stove inside. And when we have a lot, we use that. Um, in big farms where they have thousands of trees, thousands of buckets, they have a big evaporator and a whole system where you just pour it in, heats up there, and it's very um, high tech. Well, All right, you just added your cold sap into your boiling sap. Yes, and what's, yes. what your evaporator is, explain this a little bit. Well, we have cinder blocks on the sides and in the back. Then we have, a, this is an old sink. Mm -hmm. And somebody um, welded the, the bottom, drain. the drain, so nothing could get out. And it's resting on the cinder blocks. Then we have a big tube here you'll get a draw from the fire underneath and bring it up here. And what's underneath the sink? Underneath the sink, if you go around here, is a fire. Wow. So usually we'll start by making the fire and then putting on the sink so that you can reach in to put on the kindling and logs. Mm -hmm. And how long does this have to boil? It depends how much sap you have. Usually about 40 gallons of sap will make one gallon of syrup. So this will probably go till night, 8 o'clock or about? 8 o'clock. We don't have 40 gallons today. Yeah. When, to boil 40 gallons, we will start the boil in the morning and finish after the kids go to bed. Um, so today we're just doing about 10 gallons. We're hoping for a quart of syrup at the end of the day. And we started when the kids got off the school bus. So will be done maybe at bedtime. Cool, so the sap started out, it was pretty clear, mm -hmm. like a little bit yellowy, but basically looks mm -hmm. like, almost like water, right? Like a little bit yeah. yellowy water. And then what happens when it's in the evaporator? A lot of the water will go away and you're left with pretty much sugar. So if you can taste it now, mm -hmm. you dip in your finger and taste it. What do you it. think of the taste? What do you taste in there? I think it's pretty much sugar water. Mm -hmm. But it's not really sweet. It's like very, very subtle, right? Like, yeah. tastes like water with a slight sweetness to it. 
Okay, All right, now we're going to taste a little bit that's been boiling a little and see if it tastes any sweeter. Mmm. It does taste pretty sweet. It's starting to get sweet. It's already starting to get sweet, even with yeah. that tiny bit of <clears throat> boiling. So tell me, uh, Naomi, this is Sam's mom, tell me about um, the project that you have going on in the public park, Edgewood Park in New Haven, with a whole crew of New Haveners tapping trees. What's going on? So we started this about five years ago. The Parks Department called me and said they wanted to have an event in the spring and talk about tapping maple trees and maybe even tap a tree in the park. And would I be willing to do that? They heard I had experience. Um, so I was more than happy to do that because in our backyard, we just have this one Norway maple. We don't even have any sugar maples. Sugar maples have are supposed to have even higher concentrate of sugar in the sap. So I was happy to go out there with my tools and um, it really doesn't take a lot. We use a cordless drill and we tapped about four or five trees okay. to start. We make a Google document and let people who have attended the tapping or people otherwise in the community who are interested can sign up to collect this app on any given day. Um, with the five trees, I think we have some of them, as my son explained, if you can put your arms around a tree, it's ready to tap. And if you could put your arms, maybe two people wrap their arms around a tree, it's definitely big enough for a couple of taps. So we have a total of eight taps, I think, in the, in the five, five trees. trees. And, um, and how many that, people collect with you? I think we have probably 15, 20 people signed up to collect throughout the season. And so people are signed up on this document and they sign up for a day and then they go out and they see how much sap is in the bucket and just bring it home? And they bring it home if they can. Sometimes there's more than a person can carry. Sometimes we get people who just want a couple of gallons to go home and make a few ounces of syrup. Um, other times we, we have some very committed boilers um, who will go out there with several five-gallon buckets and fill them all up mm -hmm. and, and take that home. So on some days, um, on a good day, we can have 15 to 20 gallons to collect at the park. So several people can even do that cool. on one day. That's so great. And do people mess with the taps or, or they're pretty much left alone, the bu their buckets hanging on the trees? And their buckets hanging on the trees and we've put up signs explaining what the project is and that people can contact us for information. And more often than not, when I met the park, people will ask me, they'll be hanging out or sitting in their car and they'll say, hey, I see you collecting the sap from the trees. That's that's yeah. really neat. It's so Oops. great that, that you're doing this in a public park and that it's open just to anyone to, to join. Um, are, can you take more people if, if more people are interested and hear this and want to sign up? Absolutely. They right. can get information from Friends of Edgewood Park. Okay, and I'll put the information up on my website, okay. thetableunderground.com. In previous years, we've had sap flowing all the way up until early April. So we've okay. got another good month of tapping. Great. And Sam, what are some of your favorite things to do with maple syrup besides pancakes and waffles? Well, I really enjoy at the end of the year down near the skateboard park in Edgewood. We have people might bring pancakes, French toast, and you can just eat them. And it's from the maple syrup that you made from the park. Mm -hmm. And it's really fun. I also like put taking some maple syrup, putting it on snow and eating that mm -hmm. as well. 
my mom doesn't want me to do that as much because it's very precious maple syrup. <laughs> Those are great last words. So thank you for sharing with me how you collect your sap. I love that you're doing this in the city and I love that you're getting all these other people out into the park to do it too. And if anybody else would like to join us for the Maple Sugar Social, that can also be accessed on Friends of Edgewood Park. We can post the information. That's on March 19th okay. at the Coogan Pavilion. Excellent. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Next up is our new Spotlight series, where we'll be highlighting the passion and wisdom of food entrepreneurs of all backgrounds and all stages of development. Today's guest is Marshall Cruz. Hello! Welcome, Marshall. <laughs> and Marshall is a young food entrepreneur. Yes, yes. He's here to talk to us today to give us some insight into what drives his passion about food and, and where his dreams in food lie. So, Marshall, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you, thank yeah. you, thank you. So, tell me a little bit, where did some of your inspiration for cooking come from? Well... Actually, to be honest, being broke, you know, we grew. I grew up. Uh, I won't say we were less fortunate, but we uh, we ate a lot of leftovers, you know. And um, I just got tired of eating the same thing over and over and over again, you know. So I would take and repurpose leftover food, pretty yeah, much. Yeah, like what kind of stuff? Perfect example: Thanksgiving turkey. You have it for like three days, and it's like, okay, it's it's, it's the same. I can't right. do too much more of this, you know. But you don't want to throw it away, so I would take. Maybe some onions, some garlic, and some vegetables. Do a quick stir fry. Not knowing what I was doing, just throwing it all in the pan. Not knowing that I'm sautéing uh, this food. Just, just you following. Just, it. It. You're just right. doing it. Yeah. You know, or even attempting to make a soup with the remaining carcass. You know, mm-hmm. not knowing what I'm doing. Just taking it, putting it in a pot of water with some potatoes, onions, and whatever other vegetables I had at the time. Right. Was you somebody know? teaching you this stuff? No, nah, I just, you, I just did you it. You just knew how to do this. Stick it in a pot. I just did it. All right. You know, uh, my first experience cooking was actually. Uh, I was maybe 11. My nine-year-old cousin taught me how to fry eggs. Mm-hmm. You feel me? And it, it, it was trippy. So once I learned how to do that, I figured, okay, well, if I can fry an egg, I think I can do pretty advanced things, you know? Right. Or what I thought was advanced at the time. Right. Like, so from there, it just grew. You know, I, I found that I love to create, you know? And I love to be in control. And food gives me the opportunity to be in total control of my situation. Mm-hmm. I found... Particular inspiration after uh, my aunt, she had a gastric bypass surgery. You know, mm-hmm. she had a lap band put on, and she couldn't eat. We had she was on a liquid diet for like the first few months, so we we're measuring her food a couple ounces at a time. Wow. Uh, broth, wow, broth and yeah. water. So she would live vicariously through the Food Network wow. or different cooking shows, and she would find a recipe that she uh, she liked and she'd write it down. And if I had some free time, we'll go in the kitchen and we'll try it. Right. You know, so we're doing all these different things, and I get to be the guinea pig. So she was like, she couldn't eat because she had the surgery. She, yeah, she couldn't. And so she just, but she was still really infatuated with food. Just really so infatuated with food. Finding the things that she was craving. Yeah. And she didn't eat it. Didn't eat it. Wow. Like she loves brownies. Like we, oh, we have this brownie recipe involves chocolate bars in the middle. Okay. And so we we call my little sinful uh, brownie. We took it from Paula Dean to keep it honest. Right. Don't tell her that though. <laughs> Love you, Paula. Yeah. So she would just sit there and be like, oh my goodness. Like, is it, is it everything I thought it would be? Mm. Is it as delicious? That's deep. And so, like, watching her get a certain sense of satisfaction from me eating. Oh, from, from you eating from the eating, food. From me eating the food, right. you know? 
it made me want to attempt bigger and greater things myself, you know, because things we were doing, I had never even thought to do before. Right. You know, pasta sauce. Never knew how to make no pasta sauce. Ragu, that's what I knew about uh, yeah. spaghetti sauce, you know. I didn't know anything about taking a tomato paste and frying it in the olive oil with the garlic and the scallions, yeah. you know. So she taught me basic things like that, you know. And then when she could eat again, I got her stamp of approval on a few things. Right. Like, she, she loves my, my spaghetti at this point, you know. Yeah. She loves so it. So you perfected your sauce. What? <laughs> it takes me at least four hours to make a good sauce, at okay. least. And that's, yeah. that's amazing. And so how did you feel, like, eating this food in front of her when she couldn't eat? I felt, like, horrible. Yeah. Horrible, like, I don't know, auntie, no. You can't eat it, no. She would try to get a little nibble, like, no, you can't do that. And I would feel bad about it because, like... How are you really satisfied off all that liquid? Like, right. if I had to have broth all day, I'd be pissed. I, I, but Yeah, that's intense. It, it is. Yeah. It, it was crazy. But it sparked your inspiration because she was pulling all different kinds of recipes. And were you watching Everything. some of the shows? Some of the yeah. Oh, yeah. Recipes? We sit down together. We yeah. sit down together. That's how I found out I, I was in love with Rachel Ray. She, does, she loves me. She just don't know it yet. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was just um, yeah. was various recipes. I, I can't really pinpoint any specific one. Well, it sounds like it was all the different ones. It yeah. was like getting to try just different everything, stuff just... and becoming comfortable in the kitchen. Exactly. So what were the different culinary cultures and, and stuff in your family growing well, up? Well, I'm, um, so I'm a Puerto Rican and an African-American descent. So, you know, I, I know that good down south southern home cooking, but I also know how to do a, a rocampollo and a, a royabichuelas and all that, mm-hmm. you know? So those those where I draw most of my flavors from. Like, I cook with a lot of sofrito. Uh, sasson, adobo. Both, both sides of your family cooking in your house, or were you getting more like Puerto Rican food? More. Um, well, I got more African American food. Okay. I didn't uh, really get. Is that because uh, your mom's African American? Yes. Okay. Yes. 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 So I was raised by my mother. And then where were you getting your Latino, like your Puerto Rican food, your arroz con pollo? And oh, was that like with very, extended family or with friends or? At first, with friends. You know, um, I grew up in Virginia. It's not a, at the time there wasn't a large Latino uh, population down there. But I was blessed enough to find a couple people here and there mm-hmm. to expose me to like the different different foods, and so uh, once I moved back to New Haven, that's when I really got in deep to it. Like I, I got in touch with my uh, Puerto Rican side of the family mm. and really just dug in. My aunt Lisi, she uh, she actually the one who got me right on my rice and beans. Keep mm. it real, you know. She she literally yelled at me until I got it right. Literally. Yeah. So what were you doing wrong? What was she yelling at you about? Stop using so much water. Um, cause I had a habit of making the rice too soft. I didn't use enough tomato sauce or sofrito. Not rinsing the beans properly. Yeah. And so then was she teaching you her sofrito recipe and how to how to use that? And were you putting that in with your rice and beans? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So how long did it take you? Um, how long did it take me? Uh, about it? a year. Wow. A year to get it right, mm. like to get it just right. I'll stand with the best of them. I promise nice. I will. <laughs> I promise I will. I'll fight with anybody's grandmother. So. You started getting some jobs in kitchens, right? So yes, yes. where where were some of your first jobs uh, in kitchens? So my first job in the kitchen was actually a fast food place called Taco Bell. I'm not sure if you ever heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, a lot of my experience came in the fast food world. Uh, Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, McDonald's. I got tired of playing with fake food, yeah. if you will. There was no satisfaction in it for me. You know, all you're doing is taking some frozen meat or some prepackaged ingredients and just reheating it and serving mm-hmm. it. There's no fun in that. There's no satisfaction in it. There's no actual cooking. There's no on. actual cooking at right. all. Right. You know, so later on, I uh, I got some experience in a restaurant called Lucky Oyster in Virginia Beach, Virginia. There I was just a uh, fry cook, not too much um, technical skill. What were some of the skills you learned in that spot, though? I got right on my saute. Mm-hmm. They taught me how to saute there. Deep frying, of yeah. course. Yeah. That's not 
it's not rocket science. Yeah. I mean, it can be when you're doing chicken. Some people like to pull it out too soon when they yeah. see it go going uh, golden brown. And then you still have it all there, There's some skill there. But right, yeah. so you got some saute, some fry skill, and then, then where'd you um, go from there? I actually gained my knife skill working at Chipotle. That's what I was missing. You know, everything else I'm, I pretty much learned on my own mm-hmm. in the house. Just watching watching different cooking shows. Um, Mario Batali was a big influence. So just watching what he did. I used to love Emerald. I watched a lot of uh, Iron Chef, mm-hmm. the original Iron Chef, not that new remake stuff that they mm-hmm. do on the Food Network. I'm talking about when, um Chef Morimoto was first starting out. He wasn't respected at all, but he... Was, that's it, just, what they was it just watching, or were you then cooking stuff at home? Oh, I, was, I was trying to get down with him. Mm-hmm. I was trying to get down with him. Morimoto <laughs> came on, I was like, oh yeah? Got you, B. Right. <laughs> and so then you were at Chipotle, and you said you got your knife skills. Yeah, what, I learned my knife skills. Prep work. I signed on to do prep. So just chopping bags of onions, chopping boxes of uh, green peppers, green bell peppers, chopping boxes of jalapeno, cilantro, oregano, like getting these different these different cuts down mm-hmm. that I thought was going to be impossible without uh, actually going to culinary school. Mm-hmm. So that, just the repetition, just, just doing the repetition, it over just and over, over and over, day in, day That's out, right. from seven in the morning to eleven when we open. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just four going, hours a going. day of practice. Just practicing and yeah. practicing and practicing. Yeah, that was the one thing I was missing. All these skills, I figured I would have to go to culinary school for. Never thinking like, okay, you being an in-home cook, you're training yourself to do these certain things. Or you're taking your work home with you and applying it in your kitchen. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was pretty dope. Yeah. So where are you at now? Where are your dreams taking you? My dreams these days, I'm looking to open my own food business. I want to start off small. Maybe cook weekly meals for people. Eventually branching into a food truck of sorts and then open a, a conventional restaurant. You know, I haven't decided on the, the cuisine for my uh, restaurant yet, but I know if I do a truck, it'd definitely be breakfast-style food. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't see a lot of that out here, and I think it'd be a, a good investment for the city. What would be special about your breakfast? So, I am the king of grits. I don't care what anybody says. I'll challenge you all day on that. I would just offer uh, different varieties uh, of grits on the go, you know what I'm saying? So, you got grits. Well, tell me about your grits. What, oh, like, so... You cheese, no cheese, you do... So, me personally... I have to have my grits savory. They okay. have to be. Mm-hmm. They have to be. No, I don't do that sugar nonsense. Mm-hmm. But if that's how you want it, I can make it that way. I just, I'm just going to scold you in the process. Right. But I like to, um, I like a lot of flavor with my grits. Like I do a, a spicy garlic cheddar grits. Mm. I saute, well, I toast some garlic and some butter, add uh, some diced onions, let that cook down for a second. Then I add the water and I season my water before I do uh, add the grits. So mm-hmm. I uh, some cayenne pepper. Maybe some Tabasco sauce, a hint of apple cider vinegar, mm-hmm. black pepper, salt, light salt though. Slowly stirring my grits. Mm-hmm. Oh, a little bit of milk for the creaminess. Yeah. Slowly stirring my grits. Once my grits start to thicken up, I add the cheese, slowly stirring it in. Let that bad boy sit for a second, and she all ready to go. Mm, you just gave us your secrets. <laughs> no, nah, because you, you no, don't have the, right. We got your. We gotta have your touch. Your I special. Said you don't touch. have the love that I'm gonna put in there. That's baby. right. That's right. <laughs> That sounds good. Many have tried. Well, it's good. I mean, you're smart to be thinking about like what's missing in the market here, right? Yeah. Like, there aren't many places you can go out and buy grits. There aren't very many There's breakfast not. trucks. And people eat breakfast all day, right? All so day. It's not, all and you day. can get real creative with that. In the places yeah. I've went and had grits, it's just, it's not up to par. You know, they're either too runny, or if they put cheese on it, they just slap a slice of cheese on, on top, top and then right. yeah. tell you to go. No. So what are some of the things that you would want help with in getting your business started? Because it sounds like you've got ideas, you have some experience, mm-hmm. but that's a whole other world, right? Like having your own business. So yeah. what are the things that you would want support in to help you make this possible? Um, actually sitting down 
and drawing out a blueprint. Realistically, restaurant businesses fail within the first five years. You know, or that's the first the, year. The first year, exactly. <laughs> but often in first five years. You yeah. know, that's just that's just the uh, statistic. So yeah, definitely planning from step by step, from the menu all the way down to the costs. You know, how to build that customer base. You know, mm-hmm. how to build like how to build the business up. You know, how right. to make it sustainable. Right. You know, I think that's why a lot of people fail. They don't they don't plan for the future. They just plan for the moment. You know, they get in get in business with the idea of trying to turn a profit instantly instead of worry about staying around long enough to actually see that profit instead of putting yourself in debt. Right. You know, I don't want to be $100,000 in debt trying to dig my way out. That's right. That's mm-hmm. smart. So we got to find you someone to, to kind of help mentor you a little or advise you. I may have a couple of ideas. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So are there other major challenges or things you think you need to get started? Not necessarily. Like a lot of people would say startup costs, but... I don't see that being an issue. You know, like I said, I want to start off small. I, I plan on ideally having at least five solid customers to start off building and cooking food for the week. And, um, so more like a private chef scenario. Yeah, private chef scenario. have some income yeah. going on that's sustaining you and then exactly. develop then the develop food truck part yes. on the side. That's smart. That's yeah. good. Yeah. You know, I don't want to just run in there and, like I said, put myself $100,000 in debt with nowhere to turn. Do you have a name yet? For my, for my breakfast truck, yeah, it's going to be Grits and Gravy. I'm going to do a... Southern style biscuits and gravy, and uh, a couple of different, at least two styles of grits. Okay. And then have, uh, of course, my protein and a couple other sides to go with it. Right. Just to make it, uh, bring it all together. Nice. Playing with the idea, uh, idea. Oh, I shouldn't give this away, but I'm playing with the idea of doing empanadas. You know, a little breakfast empanada for people on the go. I've got a couple of. Couple ideas. Couple of ideas. And in terms of having like a certified commercial kitchen, if you had a truck, would you be? Primarily just cooking on the truck. Is that the idea? So you don't also have to be paying for a kitchen? Yes, yes. I would do. A, I would probably do a lot of prep in my home kitchen. And then whatever couldn't be prepped, I'd cook on the truck. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean, the trick with that, that's what a lot of people do, but it's not legal to it's do that. It's not legal. No, you got it because it's not a certified kitchen. So oh. that's one of those things. We got to hook you up with finding a, a certified Definitely. kitchen so that you can... As soon as you start chopping that food, you got to make sure where you're washing the cutting board and the knife and all that stuff is like. Well, maybe up to I just bring a health inspector in real quick. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's a little more tricky than that, but we'll hook you up. We'll hook you up with some some resources for that. That'd be dope. I appreciate it. So, uh, how are you feeling about about food in your community? About like what you see people eating and about people's health and stuff in, in um, your community? I don't like it. You know, so we live in New Haven. And you'll see in New Haven more corner stores than you will grocery stores. You know, a lot of people live off of the the cold sandwich, the steak and cheeses, the french fries, the chicken tenders, the beef patties. You know, there's not a lot available. Potato chips. It's so expensive to eat healthy. You know, and someone says, someone uh, posed a question to me. Well, if the grocery store has a health food section, what's the rest of it? Right. You know? So, I don't, I don't know. I'm, it, it's, it's irritating. It's frustrating. Like, why, why is it that because of where we live, we have to get lower quality ingredients? Why do we have to get more processed food? Why do we have to get the food that has all the additives and the antibiotics and mm-hmm. the stuff that we know causes cancer with the different carcinogens in it? Like, why do we have to have that? You know, I, I think it's, it's pitiful and it's a shame. When you think about the food you like to cook and you think about like what food ideally you'd like people to be eating, yeah. like how do you put those things together? Like you're talking about empanadas, empanadas yeah. are usually fried food, right? They are and fried so, like, food. What 
how do you feel about that? See, you're going to make me give away what I was going to do, but um, I, was, I wouldn't fry them. I would bake them. I'm drawing inspiration from the Jamaicans. You know, the Jamaicans, they do their beef patties, but they don't fry them. They're baked. And they do a lot of vegetarian They do a lot of vegetarian, exactly. Vegetables and yeah, fruit in like, their fresh. You ever had a spinach patty? Mm-hmm. It's delicious. Yeah. It's delicious. I love the veggie patties where there's like cabbage and corn. What? They put like all spice and make them it's nice delicious. and hot. Yes. Yeah. It's crazy. So good. When I'm cooking for other people, I try to be as healthy as possible. I don't use a, if I'm using oil, I try to use coconut oil mm-hmm. or olive oil. I'm not deep frying anything. I do a quick pan fry and then I'll finish it in the oven. Mm. You know? Um, I do a lot of my vegetables. I used to cook them all the way down, not no more. Uh, I keep that, keep, keep, yeah, keep that green color to them, keep that bite to them, keep the, the nutrients that you need. Yeah. You know, I just try to be more cognizant of the stuff like that. Good. Well, thank you for sharing with me. Thank I'm you for excited. having me. You're welcome. I'm excited. You gotta let me cook for you, Tegan. Hold on. Yes. Now. You gotta let me cook for you one Let's day. Let's cook together. <laughs> we'll have you on our next show and we'll, we'll, cook, we'll get in the kitchen together. Yes. I like it. <laughs> nice. Tegan, yes. All right. Thank you, Marshall. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. This piece was the first in our new Spotlight series, where we'll be highlighting the passion and wisdom of food entrepreneurs of all backgrounds and at all stages of development. Many people wanting to start a food business cross my path on a weekly basis, and I always try to draw on my own experiences owning a catering company and working in the food industry to help them find their way. There are so many paths to success, and people often don't see the potholes before they're in them, so I thought it would be fun to make some of these conversations a bit more public. If you'd like to suggest a food business owner or worker for this series, please go to thetableunderground.com or to Facebook and send me a message. Thanks for listening.